taken from Romans 5, 6 through 9. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? This ends the reading. I've loved this series so much. It's been fun. I've had conversations with people after of, when you first talked about sharing for movies, like, I didn't get it. But then I listened to the message, or I came on Wednesday and heard the discussion, and I got it. It makes sense. So it's been cool to hear that from people um, as we've wandered through these messages and these movies, and today I get to hit one of my all-time favorite movies. But before I get into that, has anybody ever been saved from something like life-threatening or a really troublesome situation? Raise your hands. Aren't you so thankful that you were saved from that? I, myself and Courtney, we are scuba divers. We both got certified to scuba dive in college And we went with some friends to Catalina and scuba dive there and and did a boat dive. And on one of those boat dives, I got so entranced just being underwater and looking around and being there with Courtney and our dive guide that at one point I looked at my air gauge and I was like almost out. It's like, "Uh uh-oh, what do I do here? Well, thankfully, this is what they train you for. And I was hoping that we would go up at some point soon, but that wasn't happening. Everybody was just happily meandering along. And I actually felt the air go, like in the tank, like I didn't have anymore. And so I went up to Courtney and like tapped her on the shoulder and gave the international sign for, I'm out of air, I'm in a bad situation. And the wife's eyes got really big. 
And we did what you're trained to do. You have an extra thing on your tank that you can give to your friend. We held on to each other, and we went up to the top. I would not have made it if it wasn't for Courtney. When we got to the top, she yelled at me. What were you doing? Why didn't you tell anybody? I'm like, well, I told you. That's why we're here and got distracted and changed our trip a little bit. But I needed her help. I could not save myself in that situation. I needed somebody from outside of myself to come in and literally in that sense to give me air, to give me life that would get me out of that situation I think there are so many good stories in the world and throughout history that tell this same story of somebody or something coming from outside of ourselves, coming into the world or into somebody's life and saving them in a way that they didn't quite realize until they got into a tough situation. A couple popular examples of these. First one was Transformers. Giant alien robots coming from outer space to save the world from other giant alien robots. Another example from ancient history, the story of Hercules. Hercules is this Greek god who comes down to earth, or he's basically the son of a Greek god who comes down to earth and has to do these jobs that save people from like crazy animals that are trying to kill them. He saves the world through his strength. And probably one of the more famous examples of this, Superman. Superman is sent by his father from their dying planet to earth. And once Superman comes to earth, we all know that he is... Faster than a speeding bullet can leap tall buildings in a single bound and saves people from all sorts of trouble and villains that come into the world. And there's a story that I'm going to share with you today through this movie, but before I tell you that, I want to share with you the point I want to get across today. And I think Paul said it pretty well, and I'm going to restate it a little bit, but this is what we're going to focus on. And that point is that God loves you. And right when we needed it, God laid everything on the line to put that love on full display through Jesus Christ. God loves you, and right when we needed it, has laid everything on the line to put that love on full display through Jesus Christ. So the movie you've seen in our... uh, In the bulletins and elsewhere, the movie that we're going to talk about today is The Iron Giant. Movies from 1999. If you asked me, this would be in one of my top five favorite movies of all time. Might even be better than a Star Wars movie or two in my estimation. It's based on a 1968 novel called The Iron Man by Ted Hughes. And in this movie, the setting is 1957. The movie literally opens in this shot, this animation from space where Sputnik passes by. And it says, Earth, 1957. Who here was alive in 1957? I thought I'd get a few raised hands. 
Do we remember, do you, I don't, I was not alive. Do you remember what it was like living in 1957? Sputnik over your heads, looking at you, beeping at you. President was President Eisenhower, and a big concern was of the atomic bombs might come down. Russia had launched Sputnik in outer space. Something from outer space might threaten us. There were worries about things that were much bigger than all of us, things that felt out of our hands and out of control and could essentially wipe us all out. We probably in that situation were our own worst enemies. In 1945, the United States had those two atomic bombs that they dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Guess how many the United States had by 1955, 10 years later? Over 2,400 atomic bombs were held by the United States in 1955. By contrast, the Soviet Union, who was supposed to be the biggest threat to us, had 200. We had over 10 times as many atomic bombs as Russia did. Maybe we were our own worst enemy at that time. In this movie, 1957, Sputnik, everything in that time is on people's minds of what's going to happen. Are we going to survive if these atomic bombs come? All these foreign enemies are coming after us. This thing comes shooting down from outer space like a comet and lands in the middle of the ocean just outside of Maine. This is the Iron Giant. And throughout the movie, we are introduced to a few characters. The main character is this boy. His name is Hogarth. Upper left there. This is when he goes off to find out what has crash-landed in his town. He puts on his army hat, straps a flashlight to his BB gun, and goes outside ready to take on whatever is going to face him. He's interested in all things science fiction and weird and outer space. There's his mom, single mom, Annie, just to the right of them. She works in a diner and has to work hard to support her son. Dean, lower left, is a local artist in town and scrapper. He takes things that are left over by people, things that people don't want, and turns them into art. Kent Mansley shows up. He's the guy there on the bottom right. He is the government official who comes into town to figure out what is all this crazy stuff that's happening here are we in danger? Do we need to do something about this iron giant that has shown up? And of course, in the middle, the iron giant. This huge, mysterious creature who we don't know where he came from, why he's here, what his purposes are, what he's going to do to us, what he might do for us. Everybody has their own ideas about what this giant is here to do, but ultimately throughout the movie we get a demonstration of why he's come and what he can do. But I'm not going to spoil that for you right now. Hopefully, as we go through this message and we connect it with this passage, we can understand, of course, the movie, but also why did Jesus come? Why is Jesus here? Why did Jesus come on earth and for what for uh, and why for us? Paul opens this passage that we read today in Romans 5, verses 6 through 7. It says, At just the right time, when we were, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. 
Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly die. I have this really cool app on my phone. It's called Waze. Does anybody have Waze on their phone? It's this GPS app. Now, GPS we're familiar with. We put in the address, and it tells us where we need to go. But one of the things I love about Waze is that I can say, I want to go to this place, and I want to arrive at this time. I'd like to arrive by 3 o'clock. And then if I look at it at that point, it'll say, okay, you should probably leave about this time to get there by 3 o'clock. And then what's even better is three, as the time gets closer is when I should leave, it actually gives me a notification. It says, you should leave now if you want to get there on time. My phone will tell me when it's the right time to leave. Paul says here, at just the right time. Why is it the right time? When is it the right time for God to act There's this interesting scene in the movie where Hogarth and the Iron Giant have connected and they're running through the forest and they come across his town of Rockwell. And the Iron Giant sees it in the distance, the lights of the town shining, and the Iron Giant wants to go in. But Hogarth says, no, 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 like, it's not the right time. They don't understand you. They won't get it. You can't go there yet. So why was it when Jesus showed up, when Jesus came down as a baby, when Jesus lived his life at the time that he did, why does Paul say that that's the right time? And why were other times not the right time? Some historians and theologians have suggested that because of the Roman Empire that existed at the time, the vastness, how it spanned, all the way from Europe to the borders of the east and towards India, and that it provides some reasonable stability and connectedness with the Roman roads that messages could pass from one side of the empire to the other with relative security, that Jesus arriving at that time was one of the best times in history that if you wanted to get a message out, you could do it pretty easily during that time. Of course, we have email and all these things now where we can send messages like nobody's business. But at some, for some reason, that might have been why God chose that time. But ultimately, because we're human and because God is sovereign, we may never know the true reasons and we can only make guesses in our limited time and mind frame here on earth. And that's why I turn to the book of Ecclesiastes as a reminder for this in chapter 3. After giving us the words, there is a time for this, there is a time for that, that inspires the birds to write their song, turn, 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 the author of Ecclesiastes says this, He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. At just the right time, only God knows Why? But we are thankful that God chose that time to do it. To quote another movie, Gandalf from The Lord of the Rings says, A wizard is never late, nor is he early. He arrives precisely when he means to. God showed up at the right time. And who is this arrival for? 
Why did God show up at this time? For what reason and for what people? It's interesting that Paul says that this arrival was for the powerless and the ungodly. At just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ came for the ungodly. Really? You're going to show up for powerless people and ungodly, unruly people? Would you want to go into a party if you knew that everybody in there was like the worst people on the planet? But this is when God shows up. This is why God shows up. It's for the powerless, people who are weak, people who are like they're sick, they're unable to take care of themselves or manage their own business. He shows up for the ungodly, those people who are irreverent. They disrespect God. They live life in a way that is against all of God's law. Flip back to Romans chapter 1 and 2, and you'll see Paul lay out examples of people who live that way. Paul hammers how important it is by giving us some examples of people who somebody might offer their life for. If God shows up for the powerless and the ungodly, and that's who Jesus is going to die for, what were some examples of people who you might actually want to die for? He says, for a righteous person, somebody might die. A righteous person is somebody who is upright, just. They conform to customs. They live their lives according to laws. You might call them a rule follower. But Paul says that just because you follow the rules, there's a pretty low possibility that somebody might actually die for you. Paul says for a good person, somebody might dare to die. Who's a good person? Somebody who's good has high standards. They live a life that is high quality and a character that comes from not just following rules, but following God's standards. If you're seen as good and beneficial to your society and your community... Paul says somebody might die for you. But in this verse, Paul says that that's none of us. None of us are righteous. None of us are good. Nobody on this planet would die for us. Because of the effects of sin and death in our lives that have existed since Adam and Eve chose to disobey God and to walk away from God's goodness, because of the curse of sin on our life, we are all stuck. We're all imprisoned. We're all enslaved. We're all surrounded. Like my example before, being out of air, underwater. There was nothing around me in that space There was nothing I could do to save myself. I needed something from outside of myself to save me. And thankfully, it came at the right moment. Because God has to respond to the curse of sin in the world. God doesn't want to leave the world in the state it's in. God doesn't want to leave the world to its own death and destruction. God won't do that. So in verse 9, Paul writes, Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? God's wrath. That's a fun phrase. Is God angry with me? 
Is God mad at me? Is that what God's wrath means? And I'm sure there's many people you've come across, and there may be some of you sitting here today that when you read that, you have a problem with this idea of God's wrath. Is that, is wrath, is God this wrathful God? Why, do, why would I follow that God? I think our image of God's wrath, or just wrath in general, is often this like, wanton, unbridled destruction, like Rambo just shooting his gun with like nobody caring, like, ah. That's not the image of God's wrath that I think is being displayed for us. God's wrath comes to those who resist his saving will and do not choose to follow God out of trust and obedience. As you read through the stories of Scripture, God's wrath is acted out on those who actively turn their backs on God and say, no, I'm going to live another way. And the aim of divine wrath, it's not without purpose, it's not without reason, and it's not without meaning. The ultimate aim of God's wrath is to bring people back because God knows that there's a better way that they should be living their life, and God wants to correct that. It's to reestablish God's divine rule over the whole of creation and to make the world and others aware of God's divine rule and holiness as it was in the beginning. It's not aimless. It's not vindictive. It's not mean just for meanness' sake. It's corrective. And it's to put God's power on display so that we can respond to that. I want you to listen very close to what I'm about to say. God doesn't hate you. God doesn't hate you. John 3.16, for God so loved the world. God wants to put an end to sin and death's effects on creation. He wants to end that curse And he has to deal with the injustice that was created in the world when sin entered into it. God does not love what's happened to you, to us, and to all of humanity. God does not love what sin has done to us and the world. God does not love what we often do to our other humans, other bearers of God's divine image. And God does not love what we often do to this beautiful earth that he has given us. God doesn't hate you. There's been a few moments in my life where I feel like I felt something like that wrath I'm talking about bubble up to the surface. And the times that it has bubbled up to the surface is when my dearest loved ones have been threatened. When somebody gets between me and Courtney and I think she's in danger. When somebody lashes out to Aurora or Hannah in a way that I don't think is right. That's when that feeling bubbles up to the surface and I I feel like I have to do something about it. It's for their sake. In the movie, we get an example of this that there's a moment where the military's out, they're trying to chase down the iron giant And he's running away, but he's got Hogarth, the little boy, in his hand. And they're flying like Superman. 
And this missile comes up and it shoots the iron giant out of the air and he tumbles to the ground. He takes Hogarth in and holds him in as he rolls on the ground and hits the snow. And when he wakes up and the iron giant stands up, he sees Hogarth laying there. The iron giant thinks Hogarth is dead. And he thinks it's because of that missile that they shot at him that his best friend is dead. And he goes into like crazy dad defensive mode, right? He turns into this huge, scary like thing where these tentacles come out and guns start shooting and he goes after the military because he thinks they killed Hogarth. It's big and scary for those who don't know what's going on. He's responding to the injustice of what they have done because they didn't understand what he was there for. Thankfully, the story, both in the Iron Giant and in the Gospel, doesn't end there. Paul says in verse 8 of our reading, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Earlier in the movie, which kind of leads into that scene that we just talked about, the Iron Giant struggles with this idea of death. In a very Bambi-like moment, they're walking through the forest and they come across a deer and the deer gets startled and runs away. Then they hear a gunshot. And then they come across the deer who's been killed by some hunters. And Hogarth gives this line. He says, things die. It's a part of life. It's bad to kill, but it's not bad to die. And near the end of the movie, after that scene when the Iron Giant is going crazy and they don't know what to do about it, they make this decision to launch one of those 2,000 nuclear missiles at the Iron Giant to try to stop it. Because they feel like that's the only way. But here's the problem, right? Where's the Iron Giant? In town. With everybody else. With Hogarth. With Dean. With all the military. They've decided to kill themselves because they're so afraid of what this giant is doing. Remember how I said in the beginning that we might just be our own worst enemy? The logical end of sin in our life and the world will ultimately be our own death and destruction. So this nuclear missile is rocketing at the town. And that gets us to the clip from the movie that I would like to share with you today. Oh no. When it comes down, everyone will die. There it is! Shouldn't we get to a shelter? It wouldn't matter. Giant? 
Let's go home. There's a few movies that get me every time. This is one of them. Oh, and don't worry, that's not the complete end of the movie. I haven't completely spoiled it for you. Please come on Wednesday and we can discuss and watch the rest of it. But God demonstrates love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Even when we launched the nuclear missile at ourselves, God loves us. God loves you. That's a love regardless of the ungodly actions that Paul talks about, regardless of our own perceived righteousness or our own perceived goodness. God loves you all in spite of the ways that we sin and mess up. God loves us in spite of the ways we bring trouble and judgment upon ourselves. God loves us in spite of all the ways we humiliate, demean, and devalue and oppress others. God loves us in spite of all the ways that we turn our backs on God and in our own ways every time nail God to a cross and try to get God out of our lives. God loves you. Honestly, this main point is a bit of a restatement of this verse that we just talked about. I thought about just letting it sit and be the main point, but I felt like I had to write something. Hopefully today you've seen this, that God loves you and that right the time when we needed it has laid everything on the line to put that love on full display through Jesus Christ.
I love the moment in that clip when the Iron Giant realizes what he has to do to save not only his best friend, but everybody else who's trying (laughs) to hurt him. He says, you stay. I go. And I think we get a taste of that idea here around the communion table. While Jesus isn't physically here with us, we believe that Jesus is with us. But around this table, we remember everything that Jesus taught us. We reenact everything that Jesus showed us because we believe that Jesus is here in the example that he set. As God through Jesus has demonstrated his love for us, this table puts that on display for us. We get to say like Hogarth does when the iron giant flies off after he says, you stay, I go. Hogarth says, I love you. And around this table, we get to look at Jesus and we get to say, I love you for what you've done for me. And because we get to say that to Jesus, we get to look at each other and say, I love you. I love you. I love you. We get to be that community. So as we step into the time that we get to take these elements, we get to remember all that God has done for us and believing that even though Jesus is not physically present with us, that he is here in spirit, he is here with these elements, and we believe that he will come back. That we get to be the community that will walk out from here today to go out in the world that has turned its back on God in innumerable ways. And we get to look at people on the street or in the car next to us and say, I love you. That's hard. Wasn't easy for Jesus either. Jesus. 